Praise. Well, today, as you can see, we are going to be celebrating the Lord's table um, and look forward to doing that. I know we did it last week, but there's a reason why we're doing it again today. But let's stand together. Let's read this text of Scripture. It's uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 26. And this is all about the Lord's Supper. And I just, in my conscience, couldn't preach about the Lord's Supper and then say, and in a month when you take it again, I hope you remember these things. So it was like, you know what? I just felt like we really needed to follow this up with celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Okay, so um, let's, uh, let's read through this text and let's allow God to teach us and to shape us in our understanding of, of what this is all about. So verse 22 of Mark 14. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Join me in prayer, if you would, please. Lord, we, we thank you for not only revealing your life in the pages of your word, but showing us, Lord, why uh, an ordinance like the Lord's Supper is so important. So, Lord, allow us today to be humble, to be teachable. Uh, there may be a sense of familiarity, and so it's possible, Lord, that our minds could wander because we think we know what this is all about. But Lord, help us to be hungry for your truth and to be taught and to be shaped and to be guided so that as we celebrate this ordinance that you've given us, Lord, we can do so with full understanding and with joy and with a purpose that would, uh, would be a reflection, Lord, of what you desire for us. And Lord, allow me as your mouthpiece simply to reflect your truth, to edify the body and, Lord, to present the gospel to those who do not know you, we ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, it's been my experience, as I have pastored for almost 30 years now, that there are some biblical practices that are in the church that are often um, taken lightly or even neglected to some degree. And I'm just going to mention three of them. The first one would be baptism. For whatever reason, um, the church in America in particular has a very kind of light view of the importance of baptism. Whereas baptism should be something that takes place pretty close to your conversion. Um, there are many in American evangelicalism who have not been baptized. They would say, I identify with Christ as my Lord and Savior, but I've not gone through the waters of baptism. And friends, if, if that's you, I would just encourage you to, to press on and to, to, to demonstrate your affection for Jesus Christ and what he has done for you by your obedience in going through baptism. But unfortunately, it's one of those things that American Christian culture takes lightly. I would say, secondly, church membership. It's an idea that many people take Lightly, They don't necessarily want to join themselves or to commit themselves to a body. You say, well, it's not directly taught of in Scripture. It may not be directly said, you know, here's the chapter on church membership. But people definitely were a part of a church, and they committed to one another based on certain things. And in our context, when you become a member of our church, you're not voting. You're saying, this is the body of Christ that I want to, to sh share my life with. This is the group of people that I want to... To, to learn from, to grow with, and to help and to minister to. And there's a commitment there. It's a commitment to one another. And yet, American Christianity, many times people, because of individualism, I think, don't want to join a church. And unfortunately, that is not healthy. It's not healthy for you. And it really leaves the church kind of confused as to well, why. What's, what's the problem? Why wouldn't you do this? I think another area where the, the, there's been kind of like this, this light approach is in the subject of the Lord's Supper. Now, by that, I do not mean the observance of the Lord's Supper. By that, I mean the, um, the approach and the attitude to the Lord's Supper. Let me give you um, uh, just kind of a, a perspective from, from the world 
that I have lived in. Um, I don't think it's wrong to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I might want to say with someone who is in the hospital who can't be a part of the body of Christ and they want to celebrate the Lord's elements while they're there because they're there and they can't be with the body. But there's something corporate about the Lord's Supper. And so they're, they're, you know, in, in the popularity of youth groups and, and college groups and things like that, there tended to be this idea, well, the youth are going to go someplace and they're going to have a special time where they're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And here's an example. You know, you know, the youth group's going out to the beach and we're going to wait for the sunset and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper out there. As if the sunset and the beach and the oceans somehow make it any better. And my concern with that, friends, is we're actually trying to add to the Lord's table, and what you end up doing is neglecting the point of the Lord's table, which is not a youth group going off someplace. It should be a youth group coming together with the rest of the body of Christ and saying, we are the body of Christ, and we're celebrating this together. So there's attitudes that have taken place within Christendom that have kind of changed our approach. And sometimes we can celebrate the Lord's table too often, and sometimes we can celebrate it too quickly. Sometimes, and this is something we always struggle with, it's just kind of like a tack on to a service and never want that to be the case. We want to pause and take our time. Um, sometimes we can be very, very cavalier just in how we approach it, or we're not concerned about our, our relationship with God as we celebrate it. Um, and so you have this, 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 this one side that's cavalier, this other side that's all experiential. And so this morning, I, I want us to, to draw our attention to what the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be teaching us on the subject of the Lord's Supper. Now, we're not going to cover everything, but we're going to cover a good amount. And Mark's account here of the Lord's Supper is very, very simple. Uh, there's more that is said in the other Gospels. We're using Mark because we're preaching through Mark. But before we, we actually get into the text, there's some things that I want us to think through. First of all, I think it's important for us to recognize that Jesus is the master teacher. He's the master teacher. His ability to communicate truth through the common objects of everyday life is throughout the gospel. I mean, he talks about the bread of life, which reflects here the Lord's table. He, he talks about the vine and the branches. He talks about the sower and the seed and, and the fig tree. He's picking up images that are all around him, and he's using them to help press home certain points that he's seeking to make. His use of parables to teach spiritual principles or to make a point. Parables like the Good Samaritan or the mustard seed or the master of the house, which is what we had at the end of chapter 13. Regardless of whether you are a follower of Christ or not, you have to recognize that Jesus is a master storyteller and a master teacher. Now, the question there is, why? And the reason is because Jesus is a continuation of the Old Testament prophet. Just think through this. The Old Testament prophets, when they prophesied, when they spoke, often spoke using symbols to communicate truth. Think about Jeremiah, Jeremiah 27. He made a yoke and he wore it to prophesy the coming Babylonian captivity. So there was a visual image for those around him, not only to hear his words, but to see what it was he was saying by carrying this yoke. A couple from Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 4. Ezekiel got a clay tablet and he drew a picture of Israel or Jerusalem on that clay tablet and then he started to build all the, the armies of the enemies that were going to come and overrun Jerusalem. So he built this, this visible, symbolic sign to help uh, add to what he was saying or what God was saying through him about that situation. Then you have uh, Ezekiel also who shaved his head and his beard, which was really unthinkable during those days, and then divided all that hair into three mounds. The first he burnt, the second he struck with a sword, and the third he scattered to the wind to prophesy the future of Israel. Again, the purpose there was to take something symbolic as a means to help communicate what God was going to do. Then we have in 1 Kings 11, Ahijah. You may not know of this prophet, but he basically tore his new robe and he tore it into 12 pieces and he gave Ten of those pieces to Jeroboam. He said, this is what God is going to do with Israel. 
He's going to take it away from Solomon, and you are going to go now, and you are going to establish this northern kingdom. So you have, you have this... Um, you have this symbolic picture of a robe being torn apart that helps emphasize this. The one that just boggles my mind, and yet it's a beautiful picture of, uh, of what God says, but a sad picture of the reality of Israel is the story of Hosea. And Hosea, of course, is married to a harlot. Now, that's pretty much um, a demonstration of Israel's relationship with God. God wasn't the harlot. Israel's the harlot, and he modeled in a prophetic way, this is what you're doing in your relationship with your God. Okay, So symbolism is all a part of, of this Old Testament uh, prophet methodology. Of course, coming from God, coming through these prophets, and Jesus continues on in the same way. He's continuing on as a prophet, sitting there over the Passover feast, and he is interpreting the meal that was instituted, and he's, he's, he's showing in a radical way what these elements actually mean. So the symbolism is important as it is central to the Passover and will be central to the institution of the Lord's Supper. And so for our purposes today, we want to think about what we have before us here as symbolic. And I deliberately brought out, you know, we're going to have one loaf of bread here. And we got this, 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 uh, uh, this juice here in this picture just representing the blood. They, they, are, they are symbols, but these symbols mean something. And so when we take the elements, they're going to actually have some meaning. Now let's think through a little bit the Passover meal. We'll walk through it just briefly um, today, um, what happens on that Passover meal in the evening. So in the upper room, everything is ready. The place has been cleaned. Uh, uh, all the yeast is gone. Jesus sits at the head of the family of disciples, and he leads them through the Passover meal, which involves a number of stages marked out by glasses of wine. Okay, so think about that. It was a long, purposefully drawn-out meal with much symbolism. With the first cup of wine, there would be what would be, we would call the hors d'oeuvres. So they'd have the wine and the hors d'oeuvres. Uh, green herbs and hariseth sauce is what I understand it to be, which is a kind of fruit-based sauce and vinegar. Then would begin the so-called Haggadah, where a boy would ask his father, what does all this mean? And the father then would recite the story from Deuteronomy 6 and following, and he would say, a wandering Aramean was my father. And he would go on and tell the story of, of the birth of the nation, what God was doing in the process of, of bringing about the nation of Israel and continuing on. And then they would begin to sing the Hallel Psalms. At this point, probably just Psalm 113, Psalm 114. And then would come the main Passover meal. But right before that main Passover meal, there was a ritual with unleavened bread. And it would normally be eaten in silence. But it is in the midst of this silence that Jesus interjects this word. This is my body broken for you, given for you. So you understand what, what should have been a time of silence during the Passover meal is when Jesus bursts forth in saying, this is what this is all about. Then the main course would be served, roast lamb. You like lamb? Not with mint sauce, though, which would be disappointing to me because I like mint sauce on my lamb. In fact, I like lamb because of the mint sauce, if you know what I'm saying, okay? But this would be lamb with fruit, a fruit puree and then the second glass of wine. Then after a bit, the third cup of wine would be served. This is the cup of blessing. And again, this cup was to be taken in silence. But Jesus interjects during this cup, and he says, this is my body of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And then after that cup, they would sing the rest of the Hallel song, so probably 15 through 18 followed by the fourth cup, and in Jesus' case, he did not drink the fourth cup. Instead, this is what he says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine 
until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, I just want to, just, uh, just a quick backdrop here of the Passover meal. This was a long, drawn-out meal. And it wasn't just that Jesus quickly, you know, said, all right, here's the bread, pass it around, we did that, okay, now here's the cup. No, these were stages in the meal. And there was time then to ponder and to consider what he was saying. And so Jesus comes and he, he, he begins to, to give new ideas and new thoughts, that uh, really a, an interpretation of this Passover meal for what it really is. So in the context of the Passover, there is symbolism. Bitter herbs really refer to the bitter slavery. Stewed fruit, because of the color of that fruit and the consistency of it, kind of portrayed the misery of, of the making of bricks um, for Pharaoh. The roast lamb, of course, was a reminder of the lamb that was, uh, that was uh, slaughtered and the, the blood that was applied to the doorpost during that time of Passover. And then, of course, eating the lamb was a time to remember the angel of death who passed over the children of Israel and destroyed the Egyptians' firstborn. So what we need to see here, that although we, we approach the Bible in a literal sense, we approach it literally, that literary approach includes the understanding and the use of symbolism. To say we believe the Bible literally does not mean that we abandon the symbolism that is in Scripture because symbolism is used in the context of literature. You understand that? All right? We use metaphors, we use similes to help communicate things. Those are literal parts of speech, ways of communication. All right? And so in understanding that, it's helpful then for us to consider um, these next few things. I, I think I've mixed things up here for my introduction. Yeah, I was mentioning all these things, didn't realize they were there. All right. So I want to show you, just talk to you a little bit about the history of, I know, you got all that, right? Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about the, the, the views of the Lord's Supper through the, the history of the church before we actually get into the text here. And I think this is really helpful and important. Just laying the foundation here that, that Jesus speaks symbolically, just like the Old Testament prophets speak symbolically. We can come now to the different views. And the first one is transubstantiation, uh, which is the Catholic view. And the Catholic view basically says this, that when the priest offers the blessing over the elements, that those elements then become the very blood and body of Jesus Christ. So, so that when a Catholic takes the, the wafer or, or drinks the wine, they believe they're actually ingesting the body of Christ. They're actually swallowing the wine that is the blood of Christ. Okay, The problem with that is that they're taking something symbolic and making it literal. They're misunderstanding how God is at work in the use of his word. So this is a very, very literal view, and it refuses to recognize the symbolism in these words of Jesus. Now, here's something interesting. The words this is my body, translated in the Latin Vulgate, which, of course, is very prominent in the Catholic Church. This is, the, in particular, the Bible of the medieval Catholic Church. Rendered it hoc es corpus meum. And it's from this expression that we get the phrase, hocus pocus. So you learn something new about the Lord's Supper today, right? And this whole idea of hocus pocus means something magical now is happening in these elements, Hocus pocus. That's where that, that expression comes from. And so we have to reject transubstantiation because, first of all, it's an interpretation based on an inappropriate understanding of how that actual text is used. It is symbolic. It's not literal. Secondly, we recognize that um, there was this thing called the Reformation. And when that Reformation came about, one of the key leaders was... Martin Luther. And Martin Luther did a lot for the church in the sense of recapturing the, the essence of the gospel. So many powerful and wonderful things that he did. Um, but one of the areas that he struggled was understanding 
the Lord's Supper, in my opinion, anyway. But we have to understand the world that he was coming from, how he had been groomed as a Catholic priest himself, and moving out of that Catholicism now into um, Lutheranism, I guess what he was teaching at that point in time, one of the areas where he struggled, where he didn't come all the way, was in this area of the Lord's Supper. So Martin Luther um, basically says, or he denies that the, the blood and the wine become Christ's body and blood, but he believed that the very body and the blood of Christ are present in, with, and under the bread of Christ. And the best way I can explain it is this, is, is that the, the, the bread and the blood are kind of like a sponge. And, and a sponge that has water in it is in, with, and around the water is around all those things. So, so it's kind of like a move away from transubstantiation, but it's, it's not a complete move away. It's still saying very much that what you're eating here is still so close to the presence of Christ, the actual very presence of Christ in, a, in that more literal sense. Then we had a guy by the name of Ulrich Zwingli, and Ulrich Zwingli and Luther on this issue did not get along. Um, but Ulrich Zwingli, he promoted basically the, the memorial view that the bread and the body are simply symbols of memorial. And that is evident by what Paul says, right, do these things in remembrance of me. Or even Jesus says, do these things in remembrance of me. The idea is remembrance. It's the memorial. Okay? And then there's another guy, well, let me just mention this. So, when, when Luther and, and Zwingli were, and the other reformers were kind of arguing this case, at one point in their discussion, Luther lost his temper and pounded his fist on the table saying, hoc es corpus mum, hoc es corpus mum, which means, right, this is my body. And the, the other reformers replied that Jesus is also, also said, I am the door. Okay, so are you going to take that literally too? Is Jesus a door physically? I mean, is that what he is? So here's the thing, you become so familiar with something that you have, you have created to be a symbol and more than what it's supposed to be, you're taking it literally, that you can't even see how you're misusing the Word of God and the illustrations that Jesus is, that has, has communicated, right? So, uh, the, so Zwingli basically looked at it as a memorial. Then there's, then there's Calvin, and this is where, this is where I would land. Um, he's saying it's not just a memorial. And I think he, what he would do is he would appeal to that passage in Matthew 18, 15, 20. It says, where two or three are gathered in my name, what? There I am in the midst of them. So he's not saying that Christ is in, you know, above, under, and with in that sense of, of what Luther is saying. But he's saying, we understand that when we take the elements, there is a memorial going. That we do this in remembrance, but we don't do it without recognizing the presence of Christ here. In other words, there is a spiritual dynamic that is going on. There is a growth process going on. There is a, a, an aspect of, 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 of confession, of, of looking at Christ and seeing in these elements something more than just a memory of something. There's actually power and growth that is taking place as we take it. Now, it's not magical, it's not mystical, but it's, it's just it's recognizing how God's worked through his Holy Spirit to stir us up in the grace that he has given us already. Okay? So that's, that's Calvin. We meet him at his table. Now, friends, it's also important for us to recognize that this is um, the Lord's Supper. Okay? This is a time we call communion. Why is it called communion? Because it's a time when we commune with Jesus. It's not just a time to remember, it's a time to interact, to fellowship with our Christ. All right? Now this is all introduction for us to get us, hopefully give us a better picture of, of what was going on and some of the history behind this to get us to the place now that we're going to answer this question, and that is the proposition. Jesus explains from the Passover meal who he is, what he has done, and what that means for us. So he explains for us who he is, what he has done, and what that means for us. Now, I remember when I was a kid going to church, I was not a believer, um, and I remember the pastor at the beginning of the communion time saying, listen, if you're not a believer, 
you know, please don't take the elements, and we will totally respect you for that. And I was probably a 12-year-old kid. I was wild. Um, I was into things that were um, not good. Um, I dressed in kind of a, I want to wow you kind of a way. Um, so I was that typical rebellious kid, but I came to church. And I remember, I remember the pastor coming with the elements because they passed them out in this church, and he came, up, he came up to me, and I listened to what he said, and I shook my head, and I said no. And he smiled at me, and he went on. In other words, he knew that just the fact that I was listening to what he was saying about not taking it, that there was something going on. <laughs> That I was, I was listening, I was humble enough, and I was being taught, hey, listen, if you're not a true child of God, then don't take this. And that was a good thing. But the other thing that happened is I always enjoyed after church on that day um, because they would use bread for their communion service, and they would always have far more. Right? You don't want to run out of bread for the Lord's Supper. So after church, they, they would put all the elements in a room. And while all the parents were talking, you know, I and a couple other kids going there, it's like, oh, it was really, really good. So that's my memory of the Lord's Supper, okay? Um, but something different happened when I became a follower of Christ. Now the Lord's Supper had meaning, and I realized it was something that I could participate in. So let's jump now into what Jesus says here about the Lord's Supper. And we're going to kind of phrase it here in, the, in this context of meaning. What is the meaning of the bread of Christ? It says in verse 22, As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. So if, if Jesus wasn't literally saying, This is my body, what was he saying? Well, see, this bread refers to the, the life of Christ. So first of all, it is a communion with his Life. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which is known as the city of bread. He was incarnated, and the bread of life took on human body. He demonstrated his divine life to all the world by living a sinless life in that body. He bore our sins in that body. He triumphed from the grave by bringing that body back to life, and he now lives in that glorified body at the right hand of the Father. And now, as members of his body, we share in that life. So turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. I want you to show you a little bit about what the Apostle Paul says in this, in this book. Because he sheds some light here a little bit. Just he's, he's answering some issues relating to idolatry. But I want us to pick up at verse 14 of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. It says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? In other words, we're participating. He's saying to the church, you are joining him together in this. Verse, six, uh, verse, uh, verse 16 continuing on here. The bread that we break, is, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we, are many, uh, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So there's this idea of, of communion. There's this idea of participation. We are joining together with Christ, with his life. And so through the bread, we see the incarnation, we see his death, we see his life. But friends, the reality is, because of what Christ has done for us, we have been changed, and we live a new life. And we live this new life not in our own power and in our own strength, but we live it in his strength. Listen to Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What is that giving? It is his death on the cross. And so we're reminding ourselves that it is because of Jesus that we have this life, and he is the only reason why we can live the way that we're living. We are partakers together with him. We experience this communion with his life. But not only that, and I think this is the one, one area that we often neglect. 
And that is that we are also in communion with his body, the church. Again, back in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16 and 17, it says, The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Now, just a little bit when we celebrate the Lord's table, I'm doing this specifically because I want the symbolism for us to kind of flesh out is that this is this one loaf now that we have in front of us represents Christ. But he also says that we then, being his body, are this one loaf. We're many. And so together we are going to be feeding off of this loaf as this unified body. So when we celebrate the bread, it's not just pointing to Jesus' death on the cross by, by giving his life or giving his body. It is also a reminder together that we celebrate this together as a community of believers, that our life is for one another. Why? Because we are the body of Christ. So when you talk about all the one another's of Scripture, you talk about all the, the, the spiritual gifts that are be, to be used in the body of Christ, that is all part of being the body together. And so the body together comes to remember and to celebrate and to recognize that he is present as we celebrate his bread. So there's some symbolism here that is absolutely important for us. I remember, again, going to, to that church in England and, and then having this, this large loaf of bread. And, and the pastor would, after that, you know, obviously that would, that would be served. And, and I remember just visually seeing that loaf of bread. And then a number of years ago, this is when I was a believer and uh, serving the Lord, you know, going to Russia. And in the church in Russia, I noticed something different. They had very similar things. They would actually, in the place I went, they would have these flat breads. They were flat but round, and they had a number of them. And what the pastors would do there is that they would actually go over to a basin, which we're going to do here. They would wash their hands. And um, after doing that, the elders then would break up the loaf. And then that loaf would be served to the people. Now, in today's world, people are like, ah, ooh. Um, you know, sanitation, you know, bring my germ things and all this kind of stuff, right? Now, Granted, I, I remember going to one church in Russia, and I'll share this because it's kind of funny. Well, I think it's funny. Um, in their tradition, the men sat in the front and the women sat in the back, first of all, which I don't like. But anyway, um, that was the case. It was a cold day, snow on the ground. Everyone's got their jackets on, their fuzzy hats and all that kind of stuff, right? And I go into church, and uh, it's a little church. It's packed. Now, I'm the guest pastor, and I'm going to be speaking that morning at the celebration of the Lord's Supper. I'm not going to be officiating. I'm just going to be speaking it. So I go in there, and I had a friend with me, and we were videotaping the whole thing. And, uh, um, you know, I go in there. It's cold. It's the middle of winter. And, of course, when it's cold in the middle of winter, all you hear is like, <coughs> right? And their practice was not the little individual cups. Their practice was the common cup. Right, And so it would start at the back, and it would work its way to the front. And every time it came down to the end of the row, you know, the person who was there would get it, and they would wipe the cup, and they would pass it down. But there's probably about 10 to 15 people, you know? So you're like, okay, well, I, I, I should have thought about who I was sitting next to today, right? You know? But I'm watching this whole thing, and the guy's got the video camera watching it. Well, one of the things that you have to understand is the pastor of the church... His job then at the end of all of this is to receive the cup, and he is supposed to finish what is left. <laughs> the guest speaker drinks right before him. All right? Now, I was really, really thankful that they didn't use Welch's juice. They used the real deal for their celebration of the Lord's Supper because I wanted as much alcohol to kill anything that was in there that had come into that cup, right? But I'm just thinking about that pastor, that poor guy. 
I mean, you talk about faith, you know, swallowing in the context of church is an exercise of faith. Now, there is something precious, though, about the unity of the church that that represents. So I don't want to deny that. But we're living in a culture today where <laughs> this whole idea of, of sharing something like this um, and, and using a wafer, for example, um, is, is difficult. I think, although the wafer has been beneficial, especially as the church has gotten larger and larger and larger, what we've lost is the symbolism of the loaf. And so we want to make sure that we understand this loaf, yes, does represent Christ. It represents our life in him, but it also represents the life that we live now as the body of Christ that comes by his power. And it's hard to symbolize that in a little wafer, right? All right so that's kind of something I want us to think through. Now, Kevin DeYoung, I think, is also really helpful here as we're thinking through this. And I, I think this is a point of clarity, but it's a point of help. He reminds us that we are coming to a meal, not a sacrifice, to a table, not an altar. And I want you to think about this. What we have up here is a table where we have a bread and we have juice as a memorial. But if you go into a Catholic church, you're coming up to what? An altar. Because they believe that Jesus is being sacrificed once again. Okay, get that? That's a whole different dynamic. So it's important that we recognize what we are doing here is coming to a table. Jesus has been, past tense, sacrificed for us. He isn't sacrificed again. That's why in the Protestant or the Reformed view, you do not have a cross with Jesus hanging on it. He's no longer there. He was buried, and he rose again. We have a cross that might symbolize Christianity, but he's not being sacrificed again. He has satisfied the debt once for all. And it's important to, to make sure we understand that significance here. So the Lord's Supper acts as a family table where we can enjoy fellowship with each other and with our host, being Christ, partaking of the rich feast of blessing purchased for us at the cross. And friends, that's just so important that we get the symbolism and the importance of that. Secondly, the meaning then of the blood, the meaning of the blood. Verse 23, and he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. So as you look into the, the wine, of course, or the juice, you're reminded of the blood of Christ. And the redness of that wine, of course, reminds you of, of the atoning blood of Christ poured out for many. And that's an allusion to Isaiah 53 and verse 12, where the Messiah is poured out. Uh, he pours out his soul to death, and he's numbered with the transgressors. So I just want to take a, a few words here and just kind of explain a little bit what they are meaning. There's this idea of atonement. His, his blood represents the atonement. Jesus had to, uh, he to, had to die on a cross, but he died um, in such a way that he, his blood covers now our sin. The idea of atonement is covering or appeasing. The idea is it's, it's no longer in play if you're a child of God. Your sin has been paid for by the blood of Jesus. It satisfies the requirement necessary to appease God's wrath for our sin. It pays the debt. It buys us back. It brings forgiveness and brings reconciliation. And remember what John the Baptist proclaimed early on. He says, behold the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. And that's the idea of atonement. Then there is this, this idea of being poured out. The idea of being poured out is this, this violent death. And when you take that spotless lamb and you're going to actually offer it on the altar, you're, you're, you're slicing it across the neck, and the, the blood is being poured out on that altar. So it's a violent death. And it's a death 
um, that, that is accomplished by, by Jesus. He is the perfect, spotless lamb, slaughtered as a bloody sacrifice on the altar of the cross. He is the only one worthy to meet the requirements to take our place and to be a substitute uh, and a sacrifice on our behalf. I would, if I were to summarize the book of Hebrews, I would say this, that Jesus is a better and a perfect son, sacrifice, and savior. That's the argument of the book. Here he is. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. All right? No one could be a better, a better son. No one could be a better sacrifice. And no one can be a better savior. It's only him. So there's this atonement. There's this idea of being poured out. It had to be a violent death. And then there's this idea of many. That's what Jesus says to you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And, of course, that speaks of those who would benefit from his atoning. Now, notice it doesn't say it was poured out for all. And it doesn't say it was poured out for the whole world. It says poured out for many. Not everyone will benefit from his sacrificial death. Not all will believe. Now, I know John 3.16 does say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. But it also says that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In other words, that whosoever is a subset of the world. Okay? And so what Jesus is saying here, though, is that my blood has accomplished everything necessary for those whom I am going to call to myself, for those who will believe. In the old covenant of the law at Sinai, the shedding of blood, solemnized that covenant. You, you finished that covenant with a, a sacrifice of an animal to solemnize or to, to seal that promise. In the New Testament, it's Jesus' blood that solemnizes his promises to us. That in his sacrificial death on the cross, we who believe in him are saved. Now, these words declare, uh, declare Jesus to be the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And through these events, we see that Jesus is truly, as, Je as he said here in Mark's gospel, the Son of Man who has come not to be served, but to give his life a ransom. For who? For many. You see how this is all working together. So when we take the cup, which represents his blood, we ought to remember that Jesus shed his blood for our sins. In his death, um, he promises, he covenants our forgiveness of sin, our adoption into his family, our guaranteed inheritance, and our, our place in heaven. And as we take the cup, we're saying, yes, I am truly forgiven, and I am resting in that fact. Now, friends, hear this. The goal of Christ's covenant with us is that we would ultimately enter into rest. The, the, the word rest in Scripture, is do, do a study on it. God wants us to rest. Now, we have the, the, the promise of future rest. But there's also an aspect where coming to the table is a time where we can rest again and be reminded of who we are in Christ and what he has done for us. So he promises to give us rest and the celebration of this blood is a reminder for us to rest. We need rest. We need physical rest. Anyone here need physical rest? Right? But we also need spiritual rest. But that will all end for followers of Christ with eternal rest. And so we look forward to that. And as we participate with these elements, these are things that are, are, uh, we're dwelling on that are all part and parcel of the Lord's table. Now, those are just the first two elements. But then he goes on and he says this. He gives a promise he says, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He's speaking here about his coming. And it is a coming to be with us in the new kingdom. This is the fourth cup of the Passover meal, the cup that finishes the meal. But Jesus is saying, if I drink this cup, 
it's all over. It's finished. But it's not over yet. You say, well, wait a second. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, did he not turn his head up to, to, to God the Father and say, totalistai, which means it is finished? And the answer is what? Yes. In other words, everything that was necessary to be accomplished, to be that sacrifice once for all, was accomplished on that cross. So it's done. But it's not over. <laughs> it's paid for. But we still have to live our lives between his ascension and his return. And he's not going to have that last cup with his disciples. He says, I'm going to have it later with you in the kingdom. Okay, This is the promise that he's giving here. You see, we're on a long journey. I don't know if you've ever been on a long journey. Maybe it's a road trip somewhere, and you're like, okay, I'm planning. We're going to go from this place. We're going to stay at this hotel, and we're going to drive, you know, eight to ten hours, and we're going to stay at this hotel, and then you stay there the night, and, you know, you go on a long journey like that. You don't typically determine all the different gas stations you're going to stop at and the restaurants you're going to stop at. But you're going to need to stop. You need to stop. You need to refresh. You need to eat. You need to you know, use the restroom. You need to gas up. And so you're going to, you're going to stop often. Right? Now, just think of that as a picture because we are pilgrims journeying through this life on our way to the celestial city, as Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress would say. We are on this long journey, and being on this long journey, we need to stop every once in a while and gain some sustenance until we get to that final destination of heaven. And so what Jesus is doing in instituting this Lord's Supper is to give us a time to stop and to pause and to be fed spiritually on our journey to that celestial city. And so we, we stop and we pause and we fellowship together. And, and so all these, these habits are coming together here. This practice, this ceremony, it's saying for us, rest a while with me on your journey. Take a little food that will, be, uh, that will remind you of who I am and what I have done and what I am presently doing to get you home to heaven. Rest a little bit, pause a little bit, reflect a little bit, think a little bit, remind yourself of what's going on. I think it's interesting because, you know what? If we didn't have the Lord's Supper, we just may not remember. And he knows that we need to institute this, it says, as often as you do it. So we're not told how often. Now, granted, some churches will do this every week. Church that I, I was saved in, they did it once a year. Now, for me, once a year, it was a great service. But it, once a year just isn't enough. Honestly, for me, once a week, my fear would be it would become mundane. It would just, I would kind of blow through it. It's, oh, yeah, this is the time for the communion. And that shouldn't be the attitude at all. But I'm saying that you, have, you run more risk of that. So we typically do it once a month here. That seems to be a good kind of a, a steady kind of rhythm in the context of our church. Now, just think with me what Jesus says when he's about to leave his disciples Matthew 28, 19, and 20, you know it very well. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you, what? Always until the end of the age. You see, the end, he, he's going to join us again. We're, we're looking forward to what he has yet in store for us. So as we journey to heaven, we are to do this until he comes. We're to remember and celebrate who he is, the one who is the bread of life, who is in communion with us. We're to remember what he has done. He's poured out his blood in covenant for us. We're to remember what he has promised, that he is coming again and and then he will drink the fourth cup with us. So every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that we are not home yet. That this is not our home. As the old song says, we're just a passing through. But home is a certainty for us. That's why 
Jesus says to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I appreciated in my studies this week some of the words of Kevin DeYoung. And here's some, some more helpful things that just flow out of what we just said. He says, the Lord's Supper is meant to nourish and strengthen us. The Lord knows our faith is weak. That's why he's given us sacraments to see, to taste, and to touch. As surely as you can see the bread and cup, so surely does God love you through his son, Jesus Christ. As surely as you chew the food and, and drain the drink, so surely has Christ died for you. Here at the table, the faith becomes sight. The simple bread and cup give assurance that Christ came for you, that Christ died for you, that Christ is coming again for you. Now hear this. Whenever we eat the bread and drink the, from the cup, we not only reproclaim the Lord's death until he comes, we reconvince ourselves of God's provision on the cross. We need this. No matter how mature you are in Christ, we need the Lord's Supper to reconvince ourselves that what Jesus Christ has done and what Jesus Christ has said is actually true. We need that. Now, having said all of that, I want to give us four proper responses to this Lord's table. Number one, first response, remembrance. The Lord's Supper is a time to remember Christ, his gospel, and the promises that flow out of that gospel. As you said, to remember who he is, what he has done, and the promises that he has made to us. He doesn't want us to lose sight of what is at the core of our walk with him. He wants us to, to continue to live in communion with him, resting in his covenant while waiting for his coming in glory. So this is a time of remembrance. And so there's, there's, there's a need for us then to pause a little bit or in song to remind ourselves of what it is that we are doing. And I don't know about you. It's easy even when you're singing a good song for your mind to kind of drift. You ever find yourself doing that? Did you do it today? <laughs> you know, and, and there's a reason we're using songs. Why? Because those are helpful reminders of these truths. Okay? So remembrance. Secondly, thanksgiving. Notice what Jesus does at the beginning of the meal. He says, he gave thanks. This is the Greek word eucharisteo, and where we get the word eucharist from. Now, the word eucharist is not typically spoken of in Bible churches, Baptist churches, Reformed churches. It's far more used in a Catholic context, right? To represent the Lord's table. This is, the, this is what it is. All right? But it literally means to give thanks. And what, one of the things that we do is we give thanks as we are celebrating the Lord's table. We, we celebrate when we're saying to Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you rescued me, that you delivered me, that you brought me out of the miry pit and established my goings and put my feet on a rock. Thank you that you gave me a new heart. You gave me eyes to, and ears to, eyes to see and ears to hear. Thank you for the promises that you've given me. Thank you for leaving your Holy Spirit to comfort and guide me. Thank you for all the things you've done for me. Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving. And oftentimes when we sing, what are we singing? We're singing thanks. We're singing remembrance. But it's also a time of reflection. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 really hones in on this because he's, he was speaking directly to a problem with the Corinthian church. They were celebrating the Lord's Supper at the end of what they would call a love feast. So it's kind of like a church potluck. Maybe they had church and after that they'd have a meal together. But things were happening at that potluck that weren't good. People were cutting in line. Wicked people. And they were, they were turning this love feast into something ugly. Arguments were breaking out. And, and there just was this, this tension that was going on in there. This is not what this, this love feast and this Lord's Supper was supposed to be about. 
And so he, he, he's saying, listen, do not approach the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. You need to think about how you are approaching this. You don't want it to become something ugly. You don't want to just begin fighting or forgetting even why you're gathered or it be more about the taste of the food than what it represents. In a similar way, we can come to the table for all the wrong reasons and with a completely wrong attitude. Think with me on this. You can come to be seen, to do your duty, to satisfy your spouse, to have an experience. You can come in an irreverent way with, with a, a carefree, cavalier, or apathetic attitude, or with pride or unbelief in our hearts. We can come with unconfessed sin. I mean, at least once a month, we can gather together before the Lord's table and, and together as a body and as individuals in that body, pause a moment and say, Lord, is there sin in my life that you want to make known right now that I need to confess because I want to celebrate this and I want to celebrate it fully and completely and be satisfied with you and the forgiveness that you have given me. We need that. That's part of the checks and balances that he's given us. So Paul's words are used to counsel, to reflect, uh, counsel us to reflect spiritually and, and to come with hearts fixed on Christ, having repented of our sins. Now, there, there's, a, there's a need here for a word for those who are unbelievers. It's important to note that the Lord's table is only for Christians. It's only for those who have put their faith and trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior. Anyone who takes the Lord's Supper and is not a follower of Christ is disrespecting the ordinance. This is unique. This is, this is expressing something about a relationship, about Christ and what he has done. And so you can pretend that you're a child of God, but you can't fool God himself. So please, if you're not a follower of Christ, please don't participate. Observe it as we participate. Consider the gospel that is behind it, that's being on display through it. View the joy and the satisfaction and the contentment that the Lord's Supper gives for those who know and love Christ. I plead with you, don't take it. Just like I was this, this young man, it's better, it's better to pass. It's better to remain seated and be honest before God than it is to pretend that you're something for the satisfaction of others. You do that a few times, and you'll get into this rut of saying, you know, I can just put on a show. Now listen, we as Christians are far from perfect, but Jesus has paid our sin. And we are his children, we're his family, and we have new life in him. And we are looking forward to his return in glory. So we celebrate this, but we need to reflect ourselves on whether or not our attitudes and our hearts are right. Finally, this last one is this. I love it, verse 26, singing. This text both ends our text as well as introduces the next movement in Mark's gospel. It says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, why do we sing? What is the purpose or goal let me read for you. You can follow with me if you like. Revelation 5, 9, and 10. Revelation 5, 9, and 10. This is the multitude in heaven, and here's what they're singing. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain in your, your blood, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, and language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is a choir in heaven singing praise to God for what he has done. This is a new song. And so we sing, and we praise him for his sacrifice. We praise him for his shed blood. We praise him for paying for our sins and for welcoming us into his kingdom as priests. We sing. So friends, this is not just going through the motions of something. This is meaningful. 
And so, as we celebrate the Lord's table today, we're going to sing two songs. During the first song, the elders are going to come. We're going to wash our hands, being considerate of sanitation. We're going to come then, and we're going to break the bread. And we're going to then have you come up through the center aisle. I know it's tight, but make two rows, and then go out and around back to your row, and we'll celebrate this together. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kindness. We still have much to learn, and yet, Lord, hopefully today we have got a, a better grasp or a renewed grasp, Lord, of our understanding of what the Lord's table is about. May we see the beauty of gathering together as a body, that we are your church, and we are this, this loaf that comes from you, and Lord, you, you, you distribute yourself to us all. Help us now celebrate this in such a way that we, we see the significance of your body, we see the significance of your blood, as well as, Lord, as we rest on that promise of, of future hope and being present with you in eternity to celebrate this table once again. We ask in your name. Amen.